Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We interrupt this regularly scheduled program of Monsters and Madness to bring you a lament on the passing of Lorraine Warren, demonologist, author, psychic, and keeper of the Occult Museum. On a cold February night in 1976, a gruff man in his early 50s sat in his study, poring over an esoteric book on otherworldly creatures. The room was small, but well-ordered, with a manuscript of every kind of paranormal phenomena imaginable. The clock on the wall chirped a wistful passing tone as it struck three, the Devil's Hour, so named because it is generally believed that Christ died at 3 p.m. In mockery, the twisting of the holy to evil purpose, 3 a.m. became the time known when the Devil would roam a lion seeking to devour its prey. The man rested back in his chair warily and alone, when the sound of the hall door opening came to him from down the passageway. His wife, he thought, with the much-needed cup of coffee. Heavy footfalls were heard coming down the passageway, yet stopped short without cause. In here, he called, a bit confused, yet no response came. Instead, there was a growing sound of billowing wind. As it grew louder, the man, gray with age, began to shiver uncontrollably. Like a great suction, the room became colder than the winter outside. A putrid stench filled the room, like that of sulfur and the reading lamp he had been using began to flicker and then dim until almost no light was left in the small room he sat in. His unsteady hands reached for the drawer in his desk, pulling out a large wooden crucifix and a vial of holy water. All the while, the swirling noise increased in intensity until it was right outside the door. Out from it came a form, black as the infinite void, taller than any man, swallowing up life itself in the darkness of its indeterminable essence. The noise was now deafening. As the creature moved closer to him, he stood stupefied with fear. From it emanated the essence of its own eternal damnation. Its hatred and loathing for all living things sought like a viper, to stab at the heart of life itself, and to drain it away 
with the poison of its detestation of all God's creation. The man, Ed Warren, resisted the sapping of his strength and lifted his hand, in which he held the crucifix. In exaltation of the glory it manifests, a meager light of a man amidst the deafening and unholy darkness that sought to envelop him. And as he stared into that night no man wished to see, he saw a thing began to take shape. Something like that of a man with a dark hood that obscured any distinguishing features. Ed acted. He had to act or succumb to the evil around him. He stepped forward, crucifix raised, and showered the shade in the sign of the cross, and uttered the archaic demand, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave. The black form stood in motionless defiance for a time. Then, slowly, it backed away, out through the hall it came. As a parting shot, Ed experienced a vision. In it, he and his wife were horribly killed in a car accident along the highway. Ed stood drenched in sweat, despite the cold of the room, and heard a strange sound of animals fighting somewhere outside. As he attempted to make out the experience he had just had, he realized that it was not yet over. As he dashed upstairs to their bedroom, where his wife lay reading in a vain attempt to save her from the horrors he had just experienced. You're listening to Devilry, and I'm Matthew William Monson. Lorraine Warren lay awake reading the biography of Padre Pio. Throughout their marriage, she had always refused to go to sleep if her husband was still working. It was in this comfortable unknowing that she began to feel an oppression around her. She looked around the room yet saw no reason for the terror that filled her heart. It was then, with loud repeated crashes, that she heard something coming for her. As the sounds grew ever louder, moving through the doorway with incredible speed, she saw the same horrible vortex her husband had just repelled. Only inside it was a different manifestation. The blackness appeared more as a portal, and a figure was emerging from it, coming closer. As she tried to move away, she found her body rigid, unable to respond to her urgent desire to move as far away from that creature of hell as possible. She could not scream either, or even blink. All she could do was stare into that horrible abyss. The sense of doom increased as Lorraine felt herself being drawn toward the abyss. In that darkness lie not death, but eternal, unutterable damnation of body and soul. By her strength of will alone, she managed to cry out the name of Jesus Christ, This loosed her body, and she managed to make the sign of the cross at the creature that stooped to devour her. It stopped, yet did not retreat, managing to move closer before Ed came running into the room, still holding the crucifix in holy water. 
The void moved away in a deafening fury of wrath and anguish, through the brick exterior and out of the house. A strange, terrible foreboding lifted immediately, and they were left with the realization of the portent it meant, what was to come. What the Warrens had experienced that night is beyond the realm of mankind entirely. Where, in the past, we have dealt with manifestations of creatures in the liminal spaces of reality, here we disembark from this world with all its mystery and wonder and look up to heaven or down into the depths of hell. And there is no better guide for us on this journey than the Warrens. With the recent passing of Lorraine Warren, it is perhaps most fitting that we should explore the subject of demonology as seen through the 20th century's most famous demonologists. Both happened to grow up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, born just a few months and houses apart from each other. They both experienced an indication of their future work while they were still children. Ed, for his part, grew up in a classic New England home full of strange spirits. His first encounter, that he could recall, was of seeing his deceased landlady in the closet of his ever-darkening room. The door, which had been closed, opened of its own accord, and inside shone a small white light that grew ever larger as it bounced slowly around his closet. The apparition took the form of his landlady, who was not a very pleasant person to say the least. She stood covered in a white burial shroud, a frown on her face, and somewhat translucent, before quickly fading away into nothing. Ed was only five at the time, and eventually worked up the courage to tell his father of the encounter, who instructed him to never tell anyone of his vision, and to forget it himself. This turned out to be a tall order for the young Ed, who would regularly dream of a lady in a nun's outfit, visiting him and advising him in his life's choices and faith. She predicted, according to Ed, that he would never become a priest, but that in his lifetime he would help many. When he informed his father of his dreams as a teenager, his father was dumbfounded at the description of the woman who visited his son, as her features resembled that of Ed's aunt a nun who had died some time before Ed was born. Lorraine Warren had her own portents, as a young girl growing up in a New England school for girls run by a group of nuns. During Arbor Day, the class had planted a small sapling to encourage the children to have care for nature. As the last shovelful was packed down, however, Young Lorraine found herself looking up at a massive oak tree, its newly blossoming leaves blowing in a light spring breeze. One of the nuns, noticing her peculiar behavior, asked what Lorraine was looking at. Lorraine, who later discovered she had a gift for clairvoyance, and was experiencing this for the first time, gave an honest answer. The alarmed nuns were quick to shuffle her off to a retreat home where she was instructed to pray for the weekend, and learned all too keenly to keep her gifts to herself. Growing up together, 
It is perhaps not a surprise that the thoughtful and kind-hearted Lorraine and the stout, barrel-chested Ed fell in love at a young age and married when they were just 18. Not long after, Ed, who had enlisted in the Navy, would be shipped off to fight the Japanese in the Pacific Theater of World War II. After returning, some years later, he had little taste for war and did not re-enlist, choosing instead to spend time with his new daughter and practice his passions, one that he shared with his wife, painting. For years, the Warrens would seek out haunted houses in exchange for interesting or frightful tales the occupants would tell of living in such a home. What started off as a passion for art and the unknown would grow to become something else entirely. As the Warrens traveled, Ed devoured any book he could get his hands on on the spirit realm. They often found themselves listening to the most startling tales while consoling and advising the people they had just met on how to rid themselves of their unwanted guests. From this, the Warrens built a reputation unrivaled even today. Before they were ghost hunters, before the cascade of unwarranted media-friendly hacks, each one proclaiming a haunting under every nook and cranny, there was the Warrens, with only their faith and a few antiquated books to guide them. In this milieu, they carved out a niche for themselves as demonologists, that is, experts in evil spirits bent on the harm and destruction of mankind. Being known as the only acknowledged demonologists who were not ordained clergy, they took it upon themselves to preach the existence of the spiritual realm to an audience steeped in scientific rationalism, eastern mysticism, and the hippie movement of the day. Despite this, they sold out lecture circuits across the U.S., telling strange stories we still hear about today. Movies like The Conjuring series, A Haunting in Connecticut, The Annabelle series, and The Haunted were all based on their experiences. Though they were at the time well known among a small community of believers that it had issue with preternatural events, the Warrens did not find international fame until they received a call to investigate a Long Island home on 112 Ocean Avenue, New York. The former occupants, the Lutz family, had been chased away by strange occurrences, and the Warrens were sent to investigate. It was discovered the previous owners, a family of six, had been murdered in their sleep around 3 a.m. in the morning. The town's name was Amityville. Amityville has become an American icon of horror, so much so that it would be redundant and disingenuous to rehash it here, as books, television series, and movies have covered it in far better detail. Instead, we'll touch on a lesser-known story of the Warrens, the Hillman House in Massachusetts. After a brief lecture circuit on the Queen Elizabeth II, the Warrens returned home to find a static message on their answering machine from a woman asking for immediate help. It was late, just after midnight in fact, but a concerned Lorraine decided to call anyway just in case the family was in dire straits. 
The phone rang without response for some time. Lorraine tried hanging up and dialing again, only to find the same issue. Undeterred, they went to bed with a plan to make a visit to the family the next day. After attending Mass in the morning, Lorraine tried again to contact Mrs. Hillman, who had left a message the night before. This time, the call was picked up immediately, and it was Mrs. Hillman herself who pleaded with them to come right away. Strange events had transpired in the previous week that she could not explain. The Warrens agreed to come at once. Upon entering the house, Ed introduced himself and immediately got to work, interviewing the family members, while Lorraine requested to walk around the house and see what she could find with her gifts. The Hillmans had three children, Dee, who was 15, Bob, was a year younger, at 14, and their youngest, Melanie, was just 11. Neither of their parents, Al or Jean, had witnessed any of the experiences the children would later profess had happened to them, though Jean had a theory on how it all started, with a gift being placed under a Christmas tree during the holiday season. The oldest, Dee, had a fascination with the occult at the time, and her mother had found a conjuring book at a local second-hand bookstore that would be perfect for Dee's growing collection. Overjoyed at the new addition to her library, Dee immediately began to try some of the easier summoning spells detailed in the book. Yet no matter what she tried, nothing ever happened. Frustrated, she had put the book on the shelf and out of her mind, and proceeded to forget all about it. That is, until one strange night, later that spring, that she would never forget. Al and Jean had left for a friend's house earlier that night, and had left the kids to put themselves to bed. As Dee was locking up, she turned off the radio and all the lights on the first floor. She came upstairs to find the faucets in the bathroom running at full blast. One of her siblings, she thought, perhaps a bit annoyed. She turned them off and proceeded to her room, but not long after, poked her head out again, listening intently. She could just make out, or so she thought, the faint sound of the radio playing downstairs. Looking down the hall, she could just make out the faint glow of first-floor lights glaring from the stairwell. Thinking that one of her siblings might be the cause, she checked their rooms to find Melanie sound asleep, but Bob still awake. Did you turn on the radio? She asked with annoyance. Nope, not me, replied Bob. Now a little worried, she approached the stairwell again, only to see the faucets in the bathroom running at full blast. She quickly shut them off and shouted down the stairwell. Who's there? to no response. Sure that Bob was just playing a trick on her, Dee went downstairs and turned off all the lights and the radio for a second time. She came back upstairs to find the water faucets in the bathroom on again. She shut them off and was just about to scold Bob when she walked into the hallway and heard it again. The ominous sight of lights on downstairs and the sound of the radio playing only this time, something was different. 
Someone was changing the channels. Rationally, she thought her parents might have finally returned home. Dee ran downstairs to find no one. Entering the living room, she found no one present. But as she looked at the radio again, she witnessed the dial moving on its own. Thoroughly terrified, she switched off the radio and turned off the lights once more and ran as fast as she could upstairs. About halfway up, she thought she felt a hand as cold as ice touch her shoulder. Undeterred, she ran as fast as she could into her room and slammed the door. She lay in her bed trying to make sense of what had just happened when she heard footsteps walking out of her room and into the hallway without the door making any movement or sound. It was then that sounds began to echo throughout the house as if someone was ransacking the place. Dee, too terrified to think, lay on her bed, her eyes closed. It was then that she noticed that despite her eyes being closed, she could still see her own room. And what's more, a small light was shining outside her window. As she watched it, it moved slowly into her room. She felt an unseen hand grab her hair and slam her back into the bed three times before she was able to break free and run to her brother Bob's room, where Melanie was already cowering in confusion and fear. As they all lay on Bob's bed trying to figure out what to do, the noises only got louder and louder. Doors began to slam, footsteps could be heard thudding around the house in circles, and Dee could just make out the faint whispers of indistinguishable voices. They called their parents from the room and pleaded for them to return, which they did not long after. When they walked through the door, they found nothing amiss in the house. No door slamming, no moved furniture, no radio playing or voices or cold hands. Just three very frightened children. Al and Jean dismissed their children's tales as trivial noises all old houses have and went to bed. Nothing else occurred that night. It all remained quiet through Friday and into Saturday, until night came when Dee and Bob found themselves alone again in the old house. Bob had just finished showering when he walked into the hallway to hear a familiar yet ominous sound of the radio playing. He called out to Dee to leave it on one station and stop changing it. When he got no response, he walked downstairs to find that there was no one there but his dog, who was standing at the entrance of the living room with its hair standing up, growling. Bob cried out in fear as he witnessed himself, the dials of the radio turning and ran back upstairs into his room. Dee had heard the commotion from her own bedroom, but was too petrified to move, for in her own room had formed what she could only describe as a purplish haze. She could never focus right on it, as it would only appear in her peripheral vision. She balled up on her bed in fear, 
and waited for it all to pass over, as it did on Thursday. Only it didn't pass. Yet again an icy hand gripped her wrist and pulled her with the force of a grown man. Dee fought her unseen assailant and cried out, causing whatever had her to lose grip. She ran once again to Bob's room, still in her nightgown, where the sounds of the night before repeated themselves with fiercer intensity. Loud thudding footsteps rattled the walls around them. Furniture sounded like it was being tossed or torn to shreds, and in the room all around them, there grew an oppressive weight of malicious terror, so much so they considered jumping out the second story window to escape. Bob took charge of the situation and decided they were going to make a run for it. Opening the door to his room, they bolted to the front door and down the street, running for the campus trying to find a phone from which they could call their parents once again. When they finally did, Bob called them at their friend's house and told them about their ordeal. Yet again, their experiences were dismissed as exaggerated. When Bob informed them, however, that they were on campus and would not be returning until their parents got home, they seemed to wake up Al and Jean from their annoyed stupor. They agreed to meet them back at the house, where they found everything just as they had left it, in perfect order. Since then, nothing had happened. Ed mulled over the story for some time while Lorraine described her impression of the house. The basement and the first floor had no indications of extrasensory perception. The second floor, however, was another matter. Entering Bob's room, she felt an immense confusion that she could not devise the source of, and later, moving to Dee's room, she felt the pressure building in her body, forcing her back, and chose to cease her self-guided tour rejoining the family in the living room. That settled things for Ed. He requested to have the house to himself for an hour or two, while he and Lorraine attempted to deal with whatever it was that had infested their quiet suburban home. It is a testament to their torment that the Hillmans agreed to this right away, allowing two complete strangers access to their home without question. They left for a drive while Ed retrieved his normal supplies, a vial of holy water and a large crucifix. After the Hillmans had left, he began a ritual known as binding. Half medieval sorcery, half Catholic sacrament, the process of binding is just another form of blessing practiced by Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and some Anglicans. Normally, the blessing is performed on a certain place, like a home or a newly built parish. When the presence of a malign spirit is suspected, the ritual is thought to bind the spirit to a reaction. It's much like exorcism of a place rather than a person. In this case, Ed chose to start in the basement, working his way up to the second floor in order to prevent whatever it was in the house from fleeing to a different corner. As he moved up, to the first floor, Lorraine was right behind him. They encountered nothing untoward. It was only when they attempted to climb the stairs that something strange began to happen. 
Approaching the stairs, they found their hearts filled with untoward terror. They could not explain, yet understood nonetheless. As they climbed, they felt a tremendous weight being laid on them. Lorraine would later describe that it felt like walking against the tide of a river. Managing only halfway up, they saw a flash of light at the top of the landing before the slamming of a door rattled the house. Tired of their weighted descent, they retreated. As they did this, Ed thought he heard a faint laughing from the second floor, and the pungent smell of mildew filled their nostrils. The Warrens were not ones to give up lightly, however. Ed splashed the stairs with the sign of the cross, and marched up them with all the force he could muster. Once there, Lorraine joined him in Melanie's room, where the prayer of sanctification was read aloud, and the holy water sprinkled in all four corners. They then moved to Bob's room, performing the same ritual, yet without effect. As they neared Dee's room, however, a coldness seeped from its cracks. Ed opened the door just slightly, then swung it wide and stood in the entrance. He saw nothing but the room of a normal 15-year-old girl. What they felt, however, was misery, a kind of heartfelt pain from one who has been convicted. It twisted them to pity, yet Ed knew it was only a ploy. He forced his way into the freezing cold room, crucifix outstretched, and said the prayer of sanctification. He splashed holy water in every corner, and almost instantly the room became warmer, and the feeling of misery left them. Looking around the room, he spotted books, vestments, and candles used for occult practices that Dee was so fond of. He gathered them together and placed them outside. When the family had returned, the Warrens advised them to discard the paraphernalia and orient themselves around more positive aspects of family, be that church or otherwise. The almost anticlimactic ending is but a small sample of the history of the Warrens' battle with the demonic that they waged their entire lives. What is perhaps most striking here is the often overlooked experience noted in the story, that of demonic oppression. Media likes to focus on the demonic possession, with its projectile vomiting, creeping, deep, echoing, otherworldly voices, and levitating little girls, all the while ignoring the other side of the coin, well known to students of the occult. Though this experience is an extreme case, such actions can be found in our own lives, across cultures and philosophies, and can be far more detrimental than the common possession story, as it can sometimes happen without fanfare or notice from whom would be oppressed. A flickering of the light, a sudden chill on a warm summer night, the feeling of a presence in a house all alone. Small nuances to the beginning of terrors. Whether you enjoy the movie or not, paranormal activity, with its slow and steady climax, portrayed this experience perfectly.
Lorraine Warren slipped this mortal coil April 18th, 2019. Her husband preceded her in death by 12 years. Just like good old Montague Summers, after their passing, their name was dragged mercilessly through the mud, sometimes of justified allegations of conflict of interest on cases they covered. More recently, the accusations took on a more pernicious character, all too common for those who cannot defend themselves. It seems every Catholic who has played chicken with the devil comes out with a few scars. Perhaps the quote from Nietzsche is most fitting. Battle not with monsters, lest ye become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, remember, the abyss gazes also into you. Now that I think about it, maybe I should rethink this whole Deverly podcast thing. Ah well, we'll see how it turns out. Devilry was written and produced by me, Matthew William Motzinger. Music by Kevin McLeod. If you enjoy listening to Devilry and would like to support us, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. To stay up to date on all things Devilry, you can follow us on Twitter, at DevilryPod, or like us on Facebook, at facebook.com forward slash DevilryPodcast. A full transcript of this episode, as well as complete bibliography, is available at devilrypodcast.com. Go there if you'd like to learn more about the strange and terrible things of the world. And as always, stay weird, my devils. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.